So how are you doing out there, podcast listeners? This is, I guess, your regularly scheduled mental health check-in. You doing okay? It seems like as soon as we've adjusted to one change, we're faced with another. And actually, when this episode was recorded, it was in the midst of the winter storm that knocked out like the country's entire ethylene production. At the time, I was without hot water, but by now, we are all feeling the effects of that storm and the impact it's having on the plastics industry, one thing after another. But that is not the topic of this episode of the podcast. We are talking about expansion, and expansion is something we talk about a lot in Spa Retailer. I mean, we've devoted entire issues to it, and we probably will again. Obviously, it is a weird and interesting time to think about expansion. On the one hand, there are some amazing commercial real estate opportunities out there. On the other, how are you going to get enough product to fill a new space? I'm talking to Brian Quint again from Aquaquip in Seattle about all of this. Aquaquip actually moved a location and opened an entire new store in the last year, and Brian is sharing how he made that happen. There are so many good tips in this one about how to go about investigating a new market, finding and choosing a location. The one thing that I appreciate about Brian, I'm not sure I'd call him a hot tub guy, and I think he'd agree. He's a numbers guy. His strength is in analyzing the business, looking at the numbers and making decisions based on what he finds. I really learned a lot from this one, and hopefully you will too. This is the Spa Retailer Podcast, where we talk retail, business, and all things related to the hot tub industry. I'm your host, Megan Kendrick, owner of Spa Retailer Magazine. Today on the podcast, I have Brian Quint back. He was on a couple of years ago and we got him to come back on again. So thanks for coming back on the podcast, Brian. Hi, Megan. Thank you for including me. A pleasure. So a lot has happened since we last had you on the podcast. You know, we had talked to you at the beginning of when Leslie's had acquired Aquaquip. And since then, you know, we've had a pandemic and a few other things go on. So what have the last couple of years looked like for your business? And especially the pandemic. I mean, we can't really have any conversation, I feel like, without starting off with that. Starting off with the pandemic, I'd like to tell you that we were brilliant and strategic and really smart and that we had a contingency plan for a pandemic. But I don't know of any business or business owner that I've spoke to that could have even fathomed anything quite like this. And so about half of our total revenues are derived by the sale of hot tubs and swim spas. That percentage of total sales is higher than what it has ever been in the history of our company, in part, obviously, because of the significant positive impact COVID has had on the hot tub swim spa business. So our concentration of hot tub and swim spa has gone up significantly. As far as beyond just the pandemic, business has been incredible, expanded into saunas in 2020, and our timing to be in that category was excellent. 
Yeah. Uh, we sell fireplace products. And so going into the winter, that's been great. Everything we do from swimming pool, above ground pool, hot tub, swim spa, fireplace, barbecue, and sauna significantly positively impacted for all the obvious reasons that we all in the industry know as uh, this notion of staycation. And so uh, we were more or less, we never shut down our retail stores, but we converted a majority of our sales presentations fairly quickly to virtual sales presentations to the point where two out of three hot tub sales for the first couple months, three months, two out of three were being sold without even physically meeting or greeting the customer. That has slipped back to probably one out of three or one out of four now, but sort of the, so there was about a, what, about a 30 to 60 day sort of stall and then when sort of the world came to 60 days in, from that point forward, it's been crazy. Obviously selling everything we can get our hands and arms on, watching lead times from manufacturers get stretched out. So there's so much time right now being spent on communicating with existing, they're not customers yet because they haven't received our products, but our book of business and there's a lot of energy spent in talking to manufacturers to try to obviously confirm timing, which constantly moves, and staying in touch with the customer to make sure that we are doing everything we can to keep the sale alive. And then on top of that, big pool season and fighting the supply chain throughout has really been probably been the biggest challenge. But record years, record years, and it looks to me from looking at our current book of business, that 2021, at the risk of verbalizing it out loud, is pretty much sold out. So I think we can look at 2021 as another record year, and we're sort of already working on 2022 book of business. And so it's an incredible, trying, stressful time. And that doesn't even speak to the challenges with our team and the fear of COVID and social distancing and working remotely and, and all those other things that have yeah. just made it very challenging around supporting your team and your people. There's never been a year, I imagine, where you've had to be more flexible with the needs of your staff for, you know, time off and working from home and dealing with, you know, kids out of school and, you know, daycares closed. Parents with kids at home. Oh, my goodness. The demands put on those working parents. Uh, unbelievable. And so it did require flexibility. And then there was the whole health fear thing. And if someone tested positive, the ramifications of what that did to the operation, we have 25 people in the field, service techs, route maintenance techs, uh, construction people, electricians, and then the, the whole COVID uh, protocol around not riding with coworkers and, and how to behave at customers' homes, et cetera. So an incredible challenge. And we could have just as easily been in an industry that didn't have the positive impact of COVID and still dealt with all the challenges that, if you will, the trying and negative challenge ramifications of COVID. And so we're just really lucky while it was an incredibly difficult and stressful year, we, because of the industry and category we're in, had everybody was fully employed. Anybody that was paid on commission for the sale of big ticket had likely their best year ever. Nobody missed work unless they tested positive for COVID and everybody was fully employed. So mm -hmm. we could have had all the bad stuff 
without all the good stuff. So we're feeling rather fortunate on that. And I think yeah. the biggest challenge, particularly now we are owned by a publicly traded company, is we know that 2021 is going to be good. We know that we have a good sense of what 2022 is going to look like, but not only unique to publicly traded companies, but it's all about revenue growth and profit growth. And once we sort of digest the COVID impact on our business, unsure on how we're going to take 2020 revenues, 2021 revenues and beat them. You don't want to ever have to experience a pandemic again to get those kind of sales numbers. It does seem like there is a lot of hope in the industry about how these numbers and these sales have elevated hot tubs in people's mind and moved it up the list. And so hopefully that's something that can carry us through in years to come where suddenly four out of five people in a neighborhood, well, maybe not four out of five, but you know, you got a couple people in the neighborhood who get a new hot tub and suddenly everyone else thinks, huh, that sounds like a good idea for me too. I mean, that's the hope and dream, right? This has elevated consumer awareness to quite honestly, every product category we sell. I mean, they're all conducive to sort of this whole stay at home, staycation, quality of life, shut in, I mean, pandemic sort of quarantine. Yeah, I think there's going to be a long lasting impact for demand of these products, as well as the aftermarket and service component of all these additional tubs that are out in the field. So both on a sales side, on a chemical reoccurring revenue side and service and maintenance, it's going to stress the industry primarily because of challenges we already have with scaling our workforce. Because the demand, you come from an environment where sales have been good. We've enjoyed several up years in the industry. The labor market has been challenging. And then suddenly you scale your business in a matter of months to where you could be enjoying up to a 50% increase in sales. And you've already got your organization sort of stretched. So finding excess capacity and then right-sizing the business will continue to be a challenge. We're right here in the home of Amazon. So there's a lot of jobs, you know, it's kind of like we used to worry about the workforce and how do we compete with Boeing to get those employees? And now it's it's the likes of Amazon and and so on. And not people that write code, but people that work in warehouses and drive Amazon Prime trucks everywhere. It's a whole new challenge in scaling sort of that bluish collar and retail employee workforce. It's going to be challenging. I mean, every market is different, but you know, I think that with unemployment being high, there were hopes that perhaps we would be able to find people since our industry is booming and so many people have lost their jobs or their jobs are kind of on hold, but it seems like that is not the case for anybody. It doesn't sound like that's been the case for you guys. You don't suddenly have this new pocket of people to choose from. In the short term, we've benefited from a number of seasonal employees typically college students that have chose to either work part-time and because they're going to school virtually, or they've chose just to not to go to school this mm-hmm. year. And we've been able to retain several seasonal people year round because of that. But that's a temporary solution. It's hard to talk someone out of going to college 
and work in a in a retail store. Yeah, I feel like their parents might have something to say about that. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think we've gotten some temporary relief, but I think if this trajectory continues, there's going to continue to be a major vacuum in the labor's pool market. You know, that's funny. I didn't even think about that as far as college students and doing school virtually. But honestly, I mean, that's how we kept our nanny this year. You know, she was in school and so she would work for us and then she'd have days where she couldn't come. And then all of her classes went online and she was able to come and be with us all day for a year, which is kind of unheard of when you hire a college student because normally their schedule changes every semester. And so during that year of flexibility and things kind of always seeming like they were up in the air, it was nice to at least have that consistent thing, that person being able to come over to our house. But yeah, now, now she's gone. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) I know it's, it's a very sad thing. I specifically wanted to talk to you for the podcast this time. We had interviewed you for for an article about commercial real estate and if it had softened at all during the pandemic. And you'd emailed me a few weeks after that story came out and said, hey, things are changing. We should talk again. So Aquacup has expanded pretty steadily over the years. What does that typically look like for you guys when there is a pandemic? You know, what are you looking for in terms of space and in terms of location and kind of when and how do you decide to expand in normal times? Obviously, being owned by by Leslie's, we are an independent operating unit of Leslie's in that we make we make all the vendor decisions, do all the buying for our products, we pay all the bills, and then basically our parent is Leslie's based in Phoenix. Their desire is to grow the business. And so while the business is growing by itself as a result of the pandemic, we are also being challenged to find a new additional ways to grow the business. Not so much in diversifying product mix, but scaling our retail business and using this as an opportunity, this timing as an opportunity to expand our geography and expand our reach. And so obviously it's more than three legs of a stool, but obviously you've got to have the right opportunity geographically present itself. You've got to have the bench strength in your organization to scale your business, to open new stores. You need to have the relationship with your your vendors, your supplier partners, to make sure that if you open new retail space, that you are gonna be able to have product to display and have product to deliver. And so that requires coordination and communication with your supplier, your vendor, and taking advantage of lead time. I heard this morning on, we have two new stores opening in 2021. One's actually a relocation of an existing store and the other one is a new store. I'm hearing that there is a eight to 16 week lead time for getting permits just to do tenant improvements. Well, that's a long lead time, but it's a shorter lead time than it takes to get a hot tub or a swim spa if you order it. And so when we started negotiating on these two locations, we reached out to our partner supplier, in our case, it's Jacuzzi, and we put product on order to basically meet the needs of those new locations operating on the assumption that we would have those locations when the product rolled out of the factory. And in a worst case scenario, if we didn't, then we would have unsold products that we would be then have available for sale. So there really wasn't a lot of risk other than the cash flow implications. And 
in a reality, they're really the risk on cash flows on the other end when you have to pay for the hot tub, not when you order it. And so we decided to expand our geography and we had a, a store that was a lease renewal was coming up, meaning the lease was ending. And we decided that we would be better off going out into the market and seeing what was available as a replacement store. And it required giving a year's notice on the location that we're moving. And so I gave notice last June, thinking that by the time the end of the year came along, the retail market, because we hear about a lot of challenges, right? And we see a lot of stores, not to mention restaurants, closing. And I felt like if we gave a year's notice in June, which is what the lease required, by the time we were ready to make a decision, the market was going to soften up. Well, what happened is working with my real estate broker, I started doing research on where we wanted to put the replacement store. And there were some real opportunities, national retailers that had vacated space. And some of that had come to market and some of it had not come to market yet. Depends on the, the financial health of the national retailer that closed the store, if they declared bankruptcy to break leases, those sorts of things. But what I found when I was out working in the market is that there were some deals on built out retail space that was available relatively short term. Some of them were actually subleases, so they didn't have long-term leases. There might be a five-year lease remaining that you pick up rather than signing a 10-year lease or whatever it was. And so it gave us an opportunity to really get out there. And there were opportunities and you had to be nimble and you had to be flexible. We ended up finding a replacement location. And at the same time, we found an other location in an adjacent market that was a sublease from a national tenant that was less than half price per square foot of what that space would have been in a non-pandemic environment, under half the retail price that it would have been a year ago. And the beauty is, is that the good news is it was cheap. It was a four a five-year sublease, but it was a built-out retail store that required much less tenant improvement. So you had a screaming deal on lease rate. You had a shorter window of lease term, which would normally be a detriment if you had to put up a lot of money into the space. But in this case, the build out is gonna be half of what a normal store would be because it had lighting, has walls, has flooring, storefront, you name it. And so therefore it gave us a chance to go into a market that I, wouldn't have gone into without the lease rate being where it was. And because the lease rate was where it is and the lease term was what it was, sublease term, it gave us a five-year window at this ridiculously low price to make any sense out of this location. And if nothing else, in five years, we move on or we sign a a new lease at the new rate, because we're going to have five, four and a half, four years of history under our belt. And so I think if one is looking for flexibility on lease term, and is the, both stores are will basically be our largest square foot of any of our stores, they both are about 7,000 square feet, which is a little bit larger than what we typically will go after. But because of flexibility on lease term, screaming lease rates 
and the ability to work with our supplier and manufacturer to make sure that the supply chain is going to support this added growth, then we have an opportunity to expand our geographic reach rather simply and cost effectively. So you guys knew you were going to have to do something about this current lease and location you were in. And in the midst of trying to find a replacement for that location, you ended up finding two. Exactly. Okay. What's funny is that out of sheer coincidence, both locations were former Aaron Brothers Frame Stores, which is a, a wholly owned company by Michaels. And Michaels has streamlined their operations and closed many of those Aaron Brothers stores. They're in high volume. One of the stores is in a Target mall. One of them is in a center with the, with the high-end organic specialty grocery store in the market. It was too good of an opportunity to mm-hmm. pass up. So yeah. I think what I've now learned is I've got another lease. We have another lease coming up in a year. And we're going to take that same approach over the course of the next 12 months is once we sort of digest the move of two stores this year, then I'm looking at other leases that are coming up and using those lease renewals or lease terminations as a reason to go in and really think about what we want to do differently in that market and then look for opportunities that are more affordable than what they would be otherwise. Well, and it was interesting when you were talking about getting shorter lease terms, you know, at first I was like, well, why would you want that? Because, you know, then you got to renew. And at that point, they're probably going to want to charge you more. But it sounds like it, it works out for you as because this is sort of a, a test market. You know, this isn't something you, you don't know if this is a long-term place you want to be. So this is a good way to test out this area without a ton of you know, capital outlay. And then, you know, when it comes back around, like you said, you've already kind of got the built-in sales and reputation where you can afford to pay more. (laughs) I almost saw it as a low risk. The lease rate was incredible. We knew the location was good. I mean, we should have probably been in this market before anyway. It's the highest, the adjacent zip code is the highest per capita zip code in the region. We're two blocks from Costco corporate. So it's a great market, but we have four years now to flush it out before we start looking at lease rates that are going to be significantly more. If I wasn't out looking at everything available, and this thing, the site wasn't really even on the market. It was mm. it had a for lease sign on it, but Michaels wasn't all that eager, motivated to do anything with it. And so yet it required sort of shaking it loose too. And I, I do that. I don't rely on on our commercial real estate brokers for that. The business owners, the most intense of anybody willing to a business owner, in my case, business operator, focused on those and relying on the broker community only gets you stuff that's on the market. It doesn't get you stuff coming to the market or that's sort of sitting on the market that's not being worked. So there are opportunities out there if you have the temperament and appetite to expand the business in this environment. So how do you do that? I mean, are you are you driving around and looking? Are you networking with people and saying, hey, if you see anything out there, I'm interested? I mean, since you are not a broker, I mean, how do you hear about things and find things? How do you do that? Networking absolutely is talking to everybody you know about lease space, particularly the brokerage community. But again, the brokerage community tends to be reactive to something coming to the market. Mm -hmm. So I find literally driving, sort of establishing where I want to be, what's the general zone 
that you want to be. And we use commercial real estate brokers can get you one, three, five mile radius demographics that tell you so much about what the customer and the area uh, opportunity is. Hot tub manufacturers have similar demographic data. And then what I do is I take that one, three, five mile radius data and I compare it to existing high-performing stores that we have. And I try to relate the percentage of homeowners versus renters, per capita income, average home price, the rate of growth in the marketplace, one, three, five mile radius. And I start comparing it to some of our other stores that have enjoyed good, solid growth. That's how I sort of zone in on a, a zone or a market. And then I literally drive the market a couple times a month looking for activity, a building that's been vacated without any signage on it. Well, then you can ask your broker to contact the owner, moving sales. And so it's really a matter of just driving every street in that market and become a student of that market. And so if something presents itself, hopefully you're ahead of the curve in these cases, rather than just waiting for the brokerage community to see a vacancy. So I think you have to sort of do a guerrilla approach to sourcing sites. So you do all of your research kind of ahead of time to zone in on where you think you'll have the most success. And then you just pound the pavement and see what's out there. Totally. And then, and in the case of moving the existing store, we could stay in the city we were, we could go to a, an urban setting a little North, which is where we ended up going for the move. And then we looked at this market a little South and we go, Oh, that's too good of a deal to turn down. And so the key is don't, Leave it to just one market. Look at every adjacent market. Don't necessarily gravitate to a location that appeals to you. Let the data speak for itself. Look at traffic counts. Look at are you on the going home side of the street or going to work side of the street? Is the traffic going to come back after pandemic? Is that a a workforce that's going to not be going to work for a while versus working virtually? All those various things. So of course, obviously every market is different. I imagine that, I mean, real estate in general in your area is incredibly expensive. And I imagine that's the same for commercial real estate. I mean, you guys are probably already paying a premium, I would imagine. I mean, compared to the probably LA, San Francisco, Chicago, I don't know that we're paying a premium. We're definitely paying more than in smaller markets, but I would put our high-end retail, not mall, but quality strip mall, maybe near a Target, near a Costco. Yeah, that stuff is generally expensive. And then so is if you're in a strip center, your triple nets tend to be high as well. And so you really have to shop triple nets as much as you have to shop lease rates because someone could come in with a low lease rate, but have a $14, $15 square foot triple net. And that just eats you alive. In our state, we have high property taxes because we don't have income tax. And so that is all part of your triple net expense on commercial real estate. So you've got to be really careful. We had a building once that we were in, the building, the triple nets were tolerable. The building happened to be sold to a new owner. They did a 1031 exchange into the building and they paid kind of a premium for it, but they had reason to. And then once the county catches wind of that transaction in the following year, your property taxes reprice to the new value of the building. And that can double 
your triple net in some cases. So you have to be careful about those sort of things. Lease rates are probably skew high. Home values also skew high, which has a lot to do, in my opinion, with some of the gaps in the workforce too, because Mm -hmm. entry-level homes in the city are 800, 850. That's a first home for a couple of kids that are six or seven years out of college. I don't, and so try to hire somebody from outside the market and come to Seattle and live in housing like that and have them work in our industry. It's tough. I was glad you mentioned working with your manufacturer and planning out if you're going to have product, because obviously, you know, even if there are some great real estate deals that people can jump on and leases that they can jump on, you know, can they actually fill that space when they open? That's a huge concern. I mean, you can't open a store without any without any products. So how far ahead are you trying to plan out that? And I guess, what would your recommendation be to people who are listening to this thinking, oh yeah, I should see if I can get a good deal on some real estate, thinking through how they're going to be able to fill their floor. The industry pre-pandemic seems to talk a lot about white space where there are not locations. And so the, the hot tub manufacturers spend a lot of time on obviously getting us existing retailers to grow our business. Don't have to be as deliberate right now, but to grow our business, to grow our store count, and to stretch our geography to help cover some of the white space that the manufacturers see. So I think the key to it is communication and collaboration. And I think so. We started looking at these retail sites in probably October. The minute we sort of sort of narrowed down the opportunity, particularly of the additional store, we went to Jacuzzi and we said, hey, we're probably looking at a May 20 timeframe. Are you going to be able to meet our needs? And the response is luckily not in the short term, but by mid-year, particularly if you've got product on order to merchandise those showrooms, they're not going to necessarily take spas and send them to me instead of sending them to an other dealer that's waiting for them. I wouldn't expect or want a manufacturers to do that, but I think you need to have enough lead time. Again, it takes two to four months just to get permits. It takes you two months, particularly through our parent company to get a lease approved. And it takes you another couple months to sort of hone in on what you have in mind. And so you add all that up and that's six, eight months and six or eight months is the lead time that your manufacturers need right now. So the lead times will, I think, get shorter over time, not get longer over time. At some point, our book of business will likely start contracting a little bit and manufacturers have scaled production capacity. So I think early on, you got to just start talking to your vendor partners and identifying win-wins for both of us. A win for them is we're filling white space and ultimately going to create capacity to sell more hot tubs. And for us is expanding our geography and giving our team an opportunity to have more growth and success over time because we're scaling the business. So it takes a partnership and collaboration to do that. You said that these are going to be two of the largest stores that you guys have. Are you also rethinking just the number of models that you bring into the space? Are you reducing that? Are you rethinking, you know, what do we want to have? Or do we only need 
these three models? Do we need 12? I mean, are you kind of thinking through that and changing that up as well, at least in the interim when, you know, like lead times are long and spas are hard to come by? We've been lucky because we got ahead of ordering floor models early on. And so we really, Mm -hmm. um, we might have one or two less units on the floor than normal, but we've replenished all our floor models. I mean, these two spaces are both 7,000 square feet. And so what it's going to do is it's probably not going to change the number of hot tubs we have on the floor. But I think once the supply chain catches up, it will definitely change how we're showing swim spas because we'll have an opportunity to have multiple models on display. And it will give us an opportunity also, again, once the supply chain catches up to more effectively merchandise other categories such as saunas, such as fireplace products, counter seasonal, and even scale our barbecue displays because the barbecue business has also enjoyed, it's been in a growth category, but then COVID really, COVID blew it up, but then the supply chain sort of took it back. And so I think we have the support with Leslie's corporate to get anything on order we need, whatever we feel like, whatever we are not being limited to what we can buy because it's sort of a 2021 is going to likely be a possession is nine-tenths of the law, sort of. So if you got it, you're going to sell it. And if you don't have it, there's a high probability the lead time to get it is going to be tough. It's easier to do with other products other than hot tubs and swim spas. We're buying deeper in categories like sauna, in categories like barbecue, et cetera. You know, something we've been talking in the magazine about a lot in the last year is just what are product categories that you can get into now? Is there anything in the consumer leisure products that you can buy and actually put on your floor in a relatively short period of time? Saunas were one that kind of worked because a lot of those end up being custom and it just doesn't take as much time, it sounded like. What has your experience been with that? And I'm just, I mean, I know you carried, you said saunas and grills, the fire category hard. I'm just curious what these other categories look like as far as supply chain issues and lead times and all of that, but particularly saunas, because that's one that we've been hearing some positive things about. The sauna category has struggled similarly, but primarily in the pre-manufactured products, infrared, conventional saunas, that are obviously made in pre-configured shapes and sizes. Those are slower to get. And luckily we placed big orders early on and made commitments, uh, six-figure commitments on inventory that we're now selling out of. But the supply chain on the finished goods has not really caught up yet. But like you said, custom saunas, which I think amount to a pretty large, not necessarily over half, but a large percentage of sauna sales, we are seeing a quicker turnaround. Custom is a more expensive, more elaborate setup, but people are, you know, they aren't going to the gym right now. And so they we're getting better and better at having great information about the health benefits of saunas and so on. And so I think we're seeing growth. It's all new to us. So we're seeing growth in the whole category, but I think you're right. The supply chain is a little more supportive right now of custom stuff than the pre-manufactured stuff. The last couple of weeks, I've been thinking, man, we probably really need a new grill this summer. Do we need to be ordering it now? (laughs) If I want a new grill this summer, do I need to donate to pick one out today? (laughs) I don't think so. Unless you have your eye on a particular, I shouldn't be specific, but Weber, probably because they're the massive company that they are, I expect some lags in supply chain with Weber. Other manufacturers who are niche manufacturers, 
be it, you know, the Big Green Egg or Pellet Grills. We're not seeing the challenges now that we were in May, June, July of last year. So I don't think you have to necessarily rush out with the power out and a foot of snow to go out and buy your grill. Well, I think I probably need to wait and see how much it's going to cost to fix our plumbing before I make any other yes. purchases for our home. So that's going to be the deciding factor, I think, on that hopefully one. <laughs> it's, hopefully it won't cost you anything. It'll just warm up. No, that's that's my hope as well. Is there anything else about expanding or looking at real estate or new commercial space right now that you would recommend to other retailers out there that we haven't touched on? No, I mean, we've touched on it, but I would say pull out your leases, remind yourself of the dates that these leases have in them, remind yourself on how much notice you need to give to either renew or to terminate and get ahead of sort of doing the homework and become a student of the market, not necessarily just on new locations, but on the existing locations. I think taking a look at existing leases is something that often is just sort of overlooked. And so if it takes a year to get out of a location, then become a student of that market and can you improve your situation? I mean, we're not only expanding our geography, but the replacement store to the store we're moving, we're dropping our cost per square foot over 20% because we're moving versus just signing a new lease. At the same time, maybe renewing leases that are coming up don't necessarily, you don't have to move. Maybe you want to renegotiate lease extensions today for leases that have multiple years left on it because lease rates and lease comps are pretty aggressive low right now. So Mm -hmm. I, I just think it's worth digging into both existing leases and then thinking creatively about where you could sort of, for the lack of a better word, bottom feed for retail space that under normal circumstances, you'd never gravitate to. Because it sounds like you guys went into a market that otherwise had been previously more or less unaffordable or just not, or so expensive that you weren't willing to test it out and risk it. Whereas now you can test that market. And like you said, a pretty low risk way. And we have 40 years to, by the time we get the store open, four years, and you're going to know a lot more. And maybe in four years, based upon the performance of that store, if you really look at doubling a lease rate on 7,000 square feet, it sounds like a lot of money. But if it's really nothing else goes up, your lease rate goes up, your triple net goes up anyway, you don't have I mean, the lease rate is one component of the operating expense of the store. And if you have the luxury of knowing what your revenues are in that store, then it's not even guesswork. You just do the math. I'm curious if there are any other trends you see sticking coming out of the pandemic. I mean, I know that businesses had to make a lot of changes to a lot of things to get through 2020, whether it was, you know, e-commerce or buy online, pick it up in the store, curbside pickup, you know, more flexible working schedules, working from home. Are there some of these things that you think will be in the hot tub industry for the duration now? I think it's an easy answer. I think the whole use of FaceTime and Zoom, not necessarily business to business, but business to consumer. As I said, uh, you know, one out of four, one out of five hot tubs are being sold on virtual presentations, asking customers to walk us through their delivery 
route into their yard by using Zoom or FaceTime to uh, get audio site evaluations. We had a situation where we had a, a senior technician get injured on the job and and to keep him working, we, we innovated a virtual service call where oh, you wow. could do a virtual diagnostic for the customer and either help the customer do their own troubleshooting of a hot tub if, if we're not getting too technical and or troubleshoot the hot tub. So there's a higher probability of first call success when we do send somebody out. And we would have never taken a technician and put them in an office and had them do this, had it A, not been for COVID and had not been for this worker's injury. And now what we've done is we've discovered the power and the impact of virtual customer visits. No different than I have a doctor's appointment with my orthopedic surgeon tomorrow on Zoom, or my daughter is a mental health professional and she's now doing all her consults via Zoom. I think many industries, many experiences in life are going to stick, particularly around this virtual piece. And so I think that's probably the one that will have the lasting impact. I can't think of other things that we've done in our business that will necessarily for sure stick over time. Virtual workforce, yes. Uh, Certain jobs that historically we felt needed to be physically in the building that don't need to be. Those are all opportunities, of course, down the road. But I think specific to our industry, this virtual service call and a troubleshooting opportunity is great. And customers are willing to pay for a virtual service call if you can help them solve the problem. I haven't heard of anybody doing that yet. And I kind of love it. My husband and I are kind of, we like to do it ourselves whenever we can. We just, we just like to do that. And so I would love that. I mean, right now with our particular plumbing issue, it'd be great if the plumber would just, you know, get on Zoom or get on FaceTime and say, okay, well try this, this, and this. And if that doesn't work, then I'm going to come out there, you know? And yes, it's like, I'd pay him to do that. And then you know, if he has to come out, maybe that goes towards your service fee or your service call fee. That would be fantastic. It'd be really helpful in this moment. <laughs> yeah. Well, good luck with that. Um, but I think it's the future. And if nothing else, I mean, you can't talk a customer through electrical stuff. I mean, you just, there's certain things you can't dare talk the customer through. But if, if a 20 minute service call over Zoom positions your technician to be able to go to the job and get it fixed, on the first call, that is a, then no need for a return call gives you more service capacity to sell. And it gives you a much happier customer. Yeah. I was going to say the customer service aspect to that is, is great too, because there's nothing more frustrating than having to make appointments over and over again for someone to show up at your house to fix something. It's very frustrating. Especially if the lead time for service calls is 10 days, two weeks. I mean, if they're out and they are not successful, it could be another, I hate to say it, it could be another 10 days till we get back out there. And and that is a result of not enough workforce, quite frankly, more than anything. So when we had you on the podcast before, it was before we were doing the Spa Retailer 5. So to end this interview, are you, are you willing to hammer through these last five questions that we've been asking everybody? Sure. I hope I can be entertaining. Yeah. Do you remember what your first sale was in the hot tub industry? Do you remember what you sold, who you sold it to? I mean, I know, I know it's been a while. In the seventies, my dad was at a convention, a pool industry show, and he bought two fiberglass 
shells they were rectangular fiberglass shells they weren't self-contained they were just shells one sat in the warehouse one sat in the retail store and it was basically the brunt of a every customer had a joke about is that a miniature swimming pool or is that uh, a dog dish or whatever it was and those spa that spa sat in the showroom again this was in the 70s for probably a year and finally my dad he put one in at our house now that i think about it it happened to be 1972 it was my junior year in high school and i was the only guy that had a hot tub and uh, my uncle took the other one and put it in. And so in 1972, we had it in the store. No one knew what a hot tub was. And so my dad put one at his house and my uncle put one in his house. That was our first endeavor into the hot tub business. It took us 10 years to circle back. And really with the evolution of the self-contained unit, it took us 10 years to sort of circle back and make the commitment that it was necessary to be in the hot tub business. You sold it to yourself kind of then. (laughs) Yeah, it's true. Couldn't sell it. And again, by the way, in 1972, having a hot tub in your home as a high school student, it was a good experience. I bet that made you pretty popular. Everybody was at my house every night. And my parents didn't seem to mind. That's even better. So was that your first real job working for your parents? Would you would you have called that your first real job? Or did you have a uh, paper route working at McDonald's? Did you do something else before? Well, I was in distributive education, DECA, in high school. So I worked in a pizza parlor for six months. I gained a bunch of weight. I wouldn't call that my first job. I guess it was a job. I got paid for it. I worked for the family business all through college, but it was made real clear to me by my mother and father that after college, I was going to have to go and get another job somewhere else for a couple of years, just to get sort of outside the family business experience. Mm-hmm. So I went into that was, it was 1977, our banks still had training management training programs. So I went into a management training program at a bank in Oregon, and spent two years with the bank evolving to consumer lending, a little bit of agricultural and commercial lending. And I have to tell you that those two years in banking was probably more formative for me than four years for sure in college because I was mentored by my manager and I really gained an understanding of doing financial analysis and understanding financials and particularly what a banker's looking for when reviewing financials to do things like loans. And so it gave me a basis of understanding over the years ahead of what's important to a bank when lending money. And it gave me an opportunity to sort of present over the years of our growth and evolution through the perspective of what a banker's looking for, rather than getting critiqued by what I gave them that a banker was looking for that I didn't have. So I would say that was my first job, real job, And it was very formative in my sort of becoming a financial, I'm not an accountant, but a a financial junkie. Yeah. What would you say is the biggest flop you've ever brought into the business? The idea or product or something that just did not turn out the way you had originally hoped? You know, I thought about that and there's probably been many. Way back when, when our business was more geared towards swimming pool than hot tub, we felt like it was natural for us to get into competitive swim team product, Uh swimsuits, you know, timers, clocks, backstroke pennants, all the various things 
that competitive swimmers and competitive swim clubs would use. And it, it was a total disconnect for us. It tended to be a different channel, tended to be a different sort of approach in how to get the customers. And so while it was definitely related to using water, it was a different audience and it was a different sales channel. And I, so we ended up getting out of that business. That was one that comes to mind. Sometimes when closely aligned categories make total sense, but you've got to sort of understand the selling process and who the buyer is and, and who the competition is. That was one that seemed like a good idea, but was a total flop. Looking at the the flip side, how about one of the best ideas that you've had? I'm I'm wondering, you know, this expansion could be one of your one of your best moves, but you know, time will tell. <laughs> I think we'll see. Not so much product best idea. I think 30 years ago, I read a book called The Great Game of Business, and it was a book around open book management and sharing financials with your team. And when you share financials with your team, you have a shared vision of what success looks like, and you have a shared vision of how you're doing with regards to tracking towards success. And so we made a big commitment to share financials. And there's a lot of companies in our industry that don't do that. And I think it gave my team an opportunity to better understand what makes a business tick and how their individual efforts and activities directly affect the overall health and performance of the business. So I, while we're now owned by Leslie's and our open book management philosophy has had to shift a little bit. I think by sharing financials information with your team gets everybody on board with a shared vision of success. And I think that has had a lot to do with the growth of our team, the longevity of our team, and the growth and overall financial performance of the business. You mentioned the great game of business, but do you have a favorite book or television show or podcast? What are you watching or listening to or reading these days to keep yourself sane during COVID? There's lots out there. I'd say that yeah. if I gravitated to something again and again, I love the David Rubenstein show on Bloomberg. And it's basically, he is the CEO of a large private equity firm in New York. And he does these 30 to 45 minute shows on lessons in leadership and interviews people from Oprah Winfrey to Bill Clinton to Condoleezza Rice and talking about what are the elements of leadership that has allowed them to be successful in their careers. That is David Rubenstein's show on Bloomberg. And I think has at a higher elevation of leadership, incredible takeaway. Very inspirational. That's one I haven't heard before. So I'll have to check that out. Thank you so much for being on the podcast again. I appreciate it. These are some great tips and a topic that we don't get to talk about very often. So I'm glad you're able to come on and, and do this little follow-up to the story. Thank you. Yeah, it's been two years, Megan. That was January was two years since we were acquired by Leslie's. So it was right about two years ago we connected. It was a pleasure being with you and on the podcast. And I look forward to doing more. All right. Sounds good. Thanks so much. Bye. Be well. Bye. The Spa Retailer Podcast is a production of Spa Retailer Magazine. 
Let us know what you think by leaving a review or emailing us at podcast at spa retailer.com. Thanks for listening.